Friday afternoon of worship already, and I could just continue to sing um, that song as well as um, the the words. I remember the the testimonies, and particularly the testimony of John Newton comes to mind as. I think he even put it on his gravestone that he said, these two things I remember and hold fast to, that I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. I pray that our fellowship and spirit of worship will continue even as we look at the Word of God. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Or as an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Lord, we want to continue in this vein of worship as we so delight in hearing of your grace in Gussie's and Sandy's and Dan's life, but also, God, I am so grateful for the sin that you have ripped me out of and continue to sanctify me in. And I pray that your word this afternoon would have a sanctifying and purifying influence, that we would see with greater clarity the horrendous consequences of sin. And that we would also see the, the amazing and indescribable love and mercy and grace that we have through Jesus Christ, our only Savior. And so it's in His name we ask these things. Amen. We have met the enemy and He is us. This is one of the most famous lines ever uh, written in a comic strip, I would imagine. And it came from Walter Kelly's comic strip, Pogo, uh, from April 22nd, 1970. And it was actually presented to commemorate, I believe, the first Earth Day on that date. And Pogo's quip was a pun based on a famous quotation by Oliver Hazard Perry, the famous Navy Commodore who in 1812 defeated a British naval squadron and said, we have met the enemy and they are ours. But I think this re, this twisting of that famous quote, that we have met the enemy and he is us, resonates in so many people's minds because it hits so close to home. It resonates with our experience. Now as Christians, we wouldn't precisely say that we are the enemy, but rather that the enemy is sin dwelling in us. As Paul expressed in Romans 7.19, 
He said, for the good that I want to do, I don't want. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin dwelling in me. The problem for us is we are very quick to think, we're prone to think that the enemy is something that's out there. Our problem is in our government, it's in our police, it's in the education system, the fundamentalists, the liberals, our boss, our spouse, even our children or our parents. Satan keeps us focused on trying to fix those problems that are out there rather when we should be largely focusing upon our own great battle, the sin in our own heart. And the long-term consequences of being distracted and just worried about what's all those problems that are out there rather than focused on the battles that we face internally is what leads to this very problem that Paul has to address in this passage, that of a failure to repent from sin. And Paul's exhortation in this passage really can be boiled down to four points. One, you can't avoid, you can't avoid unrepentant unbelievers. However, point two, you need to avoid unrepentant believers. And you need to judge the professions of believers And then you need to expel any unrepentant believers among you. So let's look at the first point he makes. You can't avoid unrepentant unbelievers. He says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. Now, based upon this comment that he makes in verse 9, there was obviously some confusion about what he had previously written to the Corinthians. Paul had told them not to associate with sexually immoral people. And some interpreted to mean, well, that means I can't associate with any sexually immoral person anywhere in Corinth. Which, given the social context of Corinth, would been really impossible. Because that was what Corinth was known by, was particularly its sexual immorality. And moreover, this is not in line with what the disciples learned from Christ, who was particularly known for his willingness to associate primarily with sexually immoral people. As Mark chapter 2 states, And the scribes of the the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And in fact, it was response in response to this accusation against Christ that he presented his probably his three most famous parables, that of the lost sheep, the lost coin and the prodigal son. So if we're to follow Christ. We have to be willing to associate with unbelievers, sexually immoral unbelievers, idolaters. We have to be willing to associate with them. 
Moreover, the only way that believers can avoid sexually immoral people in this world would be for them to physically leave the world, which is what Paul says. So he clarifies here that he was not exhorting them to avoid sexually immoral people in general, but in particular, those who profess to follow Christ and wouldn't repent from that sexual immorality. And then he, this brings us to the second point where he says, you need to avoid unrepentant believers. That's what he's talking about. As he says in verse 11, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality. But notice he doesn't stop there. Or greed. Or is an idolater. A reviler. A drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Now, every Christian struggles with sin. We need to just make that clear lest we miss Paul's point. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So Paul is not saying, don't associate with Christians who sin. Because that would be impossible as well. What he's talking about is those people who claim to follow Christ, and yet they will not repent when confronted by their sin. When, they're, when that sin is pointed out to them, when they're shown in the Word of God, what you're doing is wrong. You are rebelling against your Creator. And they say, either no, I'm not, or I'm not going to change anyway, or they come up with some excuse. When they're unwilling to repent, these are, we should not even eat with such a one. So what Paul is describing in this passage is what is, typically known as the final step of church discipline. When an unrepentant believer is asked to leave the church. However, I don't think church discipline is the best term to describe what's going on here. Because discipline is not really the intent. The intent is to clarify that based upon the believer's willful choice of refusing to repent from sin, he or she, by their actions, is declaring that they are not a believer. What the church is doing is simply clarifying that they aren't a believer because by their actions, they're saying, I am choosing not to follow Christ any longer. And if a person chooses to do that, they have no reason to believe that they're saved. They are rejecting Christ by that very action. Because repentance is fundamental to being a Christian. Which is why when the gospel is proclaimed by the apostles, they proclaim repent and believe. Right? Both of those. As James says, faith without works is worthless. Repentance is foundational to being a Christian. John the Baptist said in the very beginning of his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Paul described his apostolic ministry to the Ephesians when, when he said that he, his job was to testify both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward faith in God. His job was a proclamation of repentance. Consider what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6. He says, therefore, let us leave this elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, 
not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. And of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. His point there is that's like basic stuff. Let's not keep going back to the fact that Christians repent from their sin. Let's go. Let's move on from that and develop our understanding. Genuine faith is characterized by genuine repentance. So how do you know if your repentance is genuine? How do you know if another person's repentance is genuine? I think a good question to ask is, when you're made aware of your sin, do you grieve it or do you justify it and try to make excuses for it? Paul describes genuine repentance in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. And actually, I'd like you to turn there in your Bibles. I believe I have it on the screen as well. But a very important passage that should characterize really any believer who's caught up in sin. Paul describes the repentance of the Corinthians in this way. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you proved yourself innocent of the matter. That is, when they realized what they had done, they did everything they could to try and make it right. And it was godly grief that produced this response in them. I think another great illustration of genuine repentance is that which is actually found in uh, the parable Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector when they go before the Lord and confess their sins in Luke 18, verses 9 through 15. Jesus says, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this way. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, know what he says in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He demonstrated it by his grief of his sin before the Lord. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia. It's a combination of two words, meta, which means after, and noia, which is from the Greek word naos, which means after mind or a, a, a different mindset than what you had before. Your thinking's change is what it conveys. So repentance incorporates both thinking and action. One recognizes when they repent the evil of what their action is, which is why they choose not to do it again. 
They're so disgusted by what they've done, they don't want to have anything to do with it. That's repentance. It's not just saying, oh yeah, I shouldn't have done that. Okay. It's you think differently about the sin. What was once enticing and appealing to you, you now look at as gross. But even Christians need to do that, right? How often do we get caught up in some sin? We, we get duped. We justify an action. We sin. But after we sin, there should be a response of disgust, of grief, of I can't believe I did that. What I did was wrong. And a zeal to not do it again. They recognize the sin is evil and desire change and therefore take action and flee it. And believers will continue to sin. We will continue to sin. And in fact, we may commit that sin multiple times, maybe thousands of times again and again, but a genuine believer will always desire to repent from it. They will respond with shame and grief over it. Now that grief might not be extreme. They might not rip their clothes and dump ashes on their head and wear sackcloth and beat their chest. They might not. But there should be a sense of that is wrong. I never want to do that again. There should be some remorse. And it might even be expressed as anger at yourself. But note that it, the grief that they have is not over being caught and it's not just over the consequences. It's a grief of recognizing the evil of what they had done. It's a grief over the evil. It's a grief over the sin. It's a grief over what that is in the eyes of God. See, unbelievers will, will grieve consequences. They'll grieve getting caught. But only a believer, and that's really what identifies a believer. A believer is grieved by dishonoring their God. So believers will fail, sorry, believers who fail to repent from their sin should not be associated with. Paul says that very clearly in verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Notice he doesn't say who's a Christian. He says who, who calls himself a Christian. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, I want to notice also that he doesn't just point out sexual sin, which is particularly what the Corinthians were interested in. That was the original question they asked. Paul doesn't stop there. Because his point is that any kind of sin that a believer refuses to repent from should lead from his removal from the body. Any kind of sin. That's the point of the list. You mentioned sexual immorality. And again, that refers to any sexual activity outside of marriage. Any sexual activity outside of marriage. Idolatry. It refers to the worship of idols. It's interesting, in, in uh, Colossians 3.5, Paul uses this very same word to describe covetousness. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So the word covetous here is the same word translated greed in 1 Corinthians 5, which is the next word. 
Paul tells us not to associate with anyone who is guilty of greed or covetousness. Now notice, greed is a heart issue. Covetousness is a heart issue. It's not just some objective sin. But it will manifest itself outwardly in things like discontentment. Quite simply, covetousness is just this desire to have more, this discontentment. And frankly, it's the MO, the modus operandi of American culture. It's what drives us as Americans. It's what all of our advertising feeds upon. Just think about this. We are the wealthiest people in the world. Think in history. And this is especially obvious at Christmas time when although we are so wealthy, we still want more. According to recent statistics, a family of two adults and two kids with a family income, a household income of $50,000 is in the richest 8% of the world's population. They are richer than 92% of the people in this world. $50,000 is not a tremendous amount of money in this culture. But it is in the world at large. Their income is 13 times the global average. And still, we want bigger homes, nicer clothes, nicer cars, improvements upon our houses. And it says, a professing believer who refuses to repent from such a heart should not even be associated with. He mentions a reviler. This is a person known for slandering the character of others. Pointing out another person's weaknesses. And that could be in speaking, it could be in writing, blogging, Facebook. Focusing on their weaknesses and sins and failures. So it's Anyone here, you don't have to raise your hand, but have you spoken in a dishonoring way about your boss or your spouse, a neighbor, a church member, co-worker? Now, if, if there was, it wouldn't surprise me at all. But the, but the question we need to ask ourselves is when that happened, were you grieved by it? Were you grieved by the fact that you sinned in that way? That's the issue. Do you want to? Re- will you repent from it? A Christian's going to sin, but are you grieved, or you just simply try to defend your sin and try to justify it? A drunkard. This, of course, refers to just a person who gets drunk. We might call them an alcoholic today. Also, a swindler. It's basically the word for a robber, a person who takes something that's not theirs. So this would include physical property. It could also include intellectual property, petty crime, taking office supplies. He says, not even to eat with such a one. Paul tells that a Christian who is guilty, a so-called believer who is guilty of any of these sins, but will not repent from it, should not be associated with, not even to be eaten with. Now, the obvious question that she comes up at that point is, well, isn't that being judgmental? I mean, just a chapter previous, Paul said, don't judge one another. 
or something to that effect. He says in verse 5 in the previous chapter, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So should we judge or shouldn't we judge? Well, Paul anticipates this question, which is why he says what he does in verse 12. And his point here is you can judge a believer's profession. But God is the one who judges unbelievers. So verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So what Paul is saying is we can judge what particularly we're judging is the testimony of that believer. And that's not hard to do. Quite simply, it's will that professing believer repent from sin? If they won't, it's an easy judgment to make. So what Paul was prohibiting in the previous section was the judging of the faithfulness of a Christian. See, such pride assumes that we have the ability that we can accurately assess how good or how effective another Christian is. Paul notes that he doesn't even have the capability to test his own heart, let alone the heart of another person. He doesn't see what goes on in secret, but God does. So God will judge a Christian's faithfulness when the time comes. That We can't do that. We have no ability to do that. And it's proud to think that we can. But what we are called to judge is the reality of a person's testimony. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? What Paul is speaking here, again, is judging external behavior, which, of course, we should do. We can and should call sinful behavior sin. That's what he's saying. If you see sinful behavior, call it sin. And if that person calls himself a believer, charge that person to repent. We can judge the profession of faith. We can't judge faithfulness, but we can judge a profession of faith. And does this person's life correspond to their profession of faith? Do they repent from their sin? They claim to follow Christ. So are they doing it? We know a tree by its fruits. As Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Jesus is making a point, and it should be obvious. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So if we see bad fruit, we should be able to say, that's a bad tree. We can judge that the fruit is bad because the Bible tells us very clearly what good fruit looks like and what bad fruit looks like. Consider Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, 
anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And notice what he says. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't. Paul's point is, if this is what your life is like, that person is not a Christian. He's not saying Christians won't sin in that way, but a Christian will always repent. It might take some time, but a Christian will repent. What does good fruit look like? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This, Paul could not be any more clear. His point is, Christians repent from sin. And if your life is characterized by unrepentant sin, you need to test yourself to see whether you're in the faith. And we need to test one another. We need to call one another to account. That's what Paul is doing here. Because the Corinthians weren't doing that with this brother in Corinth. And Paul's saying, you have to. I can make this judgment even though I'm in another city writing to you. You guys should have done this a long time ago. And ultimately speaking, again, recognize Christians, we are not the ones ultimately making this judgment. It's the word of God. All the Christian is doing is saying, the word of God says this is wrong. Not me. This isn't, I'm not just making it. I, it's, Christians don't make judgments and say it's wrong because I just, it makes me feel uncomfortable or I can't, it, I don't like it. That's not what makes sin sin. God makes his word very clear to us. And this is what we bring. If we can't point to the sin that the person's committing, then we have no authority. But if what they're doing is in violation of what God's word tells us to do, they need to repent. The judgment that we make is simply, brother, you say that you're a believer, but you are not living like one. You are denying Christ by your actions. As Paul notes in verse 13, God judges those outside. So we're to judge the behavior of Christians and challenge them to live according to his word. And the reason we do that with, or sorry, don't do that with unbelievers is because unbelievers don't claim to follow God's word. Unbelievers are doing exactly what we expect them to do. So if they haven't had their heart changed, we should not expect anything different. Of course, this is what they're going to do. So what good would it do to tell an unbeliever that what you're doing is wrong or that they should change? In fact, if you think about it, that may be one of the worst things that you could do to them. I mean, it's okay to say what they're doing is wrong. That's not wrong. But for them to think that if they just clean up their life, that therefore they're saved. That fruit of their life should help them recognize the reality that the wrath of God is upon them. And they need to be saved from his wrath. And so we would 
call them to be reconciled to God. That's what they need. They don't need to clean up their life. They need to receive the forgiveness that's in Christ. But a believer who claims to follow God's word and fails to repent in some area of their life, their faith needs to be called into question. And this is so merciful of God. There's no question as to what action we should take. Brothers and sisters, see it clearly. Because it's hard to not associate with a, with a professing believer. I have great scars in my life from people who would not repent from their sin. And therefore, because and, I couldn't support them in what they were doing, association was broken off. That's not easy to do. There is, that's not our... We, we want fellowship. We want to be integrated. We don't want rifts. And so God mercifully tells us exactly what we need to do. His word tells us. So the church that won't do this is the church that's unrepentant. The Christian who won't hold other Christians to account with what the God says is an unrepentant Christian as well. So brothers and sisters, we have to do this or we're the unrepentant ones. Paul makes it clear, verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Now, the ESV's translation, I think, is a bit strong. Because it brings to mind something like the communist purges of the last century. But the word that Paul uses simply means to remove. So the idea that's being conveyed is not condemnation upon the sinner. That's not, that's not what's going on here. It's, he's rather doing two things, maintaining the health of the church so that in hope the unrepentant brother would realize how he's actually behaving. One of the greatest problems in the church today, particularly in America, is so many people are living in unrepentant sin and confident that they're saved. What the church needs to do is saying, you have no reason for such confidence. Based upon what the Bible says, not how I feel, but what the Bible says. So the, the church is not really disciplining as much as it's clarifying or invalidating this believer, this person's profession of faith. So discipline is happening. Don't get me wrong. It's just not happening by the church. So the church isn't disciplining like a parent would discipline their child. But discipline is happening. happening by God. Jesus says in Revelation 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, the author writes, have you not forgotten the exhortation that's addressed to you as sons? My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. The Lord will discipline his children. And so when that person has to be removed from the body, they shouldn't be concerned about what everybody else in the church thinks. Their primary concern should be, what is God going to do with my unrepentant sin? I received my teaching position at my previous school just after the previous headmaster 
was caught in an adulterous affair with actually the development director of the same school. And uh, neither he nor she repented and both ended up leaving their families and divorcing their spouses and then marrying one another. And I knew the pastor of the church that 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 couple attended, had attended, and that man, that previous headmaster, was expelled from the church. They went through step four church discipline. And the adulterous man knew his church polity pretty well. In fact, he, was, he had been a leader in the church. And so after he got remarried, he asked to have his church membership restored. Because what he said is, I've repented from my sin. I'm now married. Are you telling me I need to now get divorced? Because that wouldn't be biblical. His request wasn't granted, and he didn't fool anyone, least of all God. And what this act showed, by even asking for that membership to be restored, is that he cared more about his standing in the church than he did about his sin before the Lord and the consequences of it. And I share this particularly because of what happened later. A few years after this, the son of the woman he married was diagnosed with cancer and died a few months later when he was in the fifth grade. And a few years later after that, the man had a massive stroke and lost most of his ability to move and communicate. Now, was this the discipline of the Lord? We can't say for certain, but I think given the context, my opinion is it it probably was. Now, again, I've read the book of Job. I know that there's some danger in being able to say, hey, hand of God. But it seems reasonable given the situation. God is the one who practices the discipline. The church in this process is merely validating or invalidating the believer's profession of faith. And again, the aim of removing a person from the church is to help that person realize they're not living like a believer. They're denying their faith by their actions. And we're just saying, brother, look at what you're doing. Or sister, wake up. You're blinded. The worst condition a person can find themselves in is to think that they're saved when in reality they're not. That is the worst place a person can be in. Failing to extricate an unrepentant sinner will only lead them and the rest of the body to think that unrepentant sin is normal for the Christian. And frankly, that is the state of, I think, the church in America. We just assume Christians sin, and they keep sinning. You know, Christians can even be unrepentant, but you know what? God forgives us. That's the predominant way we think, rather than grieving over sin. And this is true that believers will repent from sin regardless of the age of the believer. Which is why I won't practice infant baptism. Because it communicates that this person is saved. Or at least they need to live as if they're saved. 
And I know in some traditions that practice infidelity, they're not saying, well, we don't believe they're saved, but that we're going we're gonna to treat them like they, need, like they need to live as if they are. Well, I think that communicates some massive problems. See, so what do you do if you baptize your infant and that two-year-old fails to repent? Obedience to this passage would demand that you no longer allow them to participate in church, which would be pretty unfair. So the church is forced, in that case, to tolerate unrepentance and hardness of heart, and the child grows up thinking that they're, a bo- they're part of the body of Christ. And the church doesn't call them to repent. But the same problem takes place in Baptist churches. As well, when children hear a really weak gospel presentation, they go to a VBS, let's say, and the VBS teacher says, all right, children, how many of you want to go to hell and suffer forever and ever? And how many of you want to go and be with your parents for eternity? And, the, you know, the five-year-old's like, I want to go to heaven. All right, hey, you know, you must be saved. Let's pray a prayer. And the kid has no idea what they've actually confessed to. They grow up thinking they're saved. They have no idea that what they're committing to is to die to themselves and no longer live for themselves but for Christ and to see His kingdom grow and get established. Instead, they're just thinking, hey, I've now just avoided all the punishment that I deserve for my sin without any clarity that their life needs to change. It's a different story if the child grows up understanding that to follow Christ entails both faith and repentance and so understands that they're not saved. See, it's not a problem if an unbeliever wants to come to church and hear the truth. We would welcome unbelievers to come. And if you're an unbeliever here today, we're glad that you're here. You're welcome. But once a person is baptized and professes faith in Christ, they are expected to live according to that profession. And if they won't, it's the church's obligation to see that they, will, they are not associated with if they won't repent from that sin, regardless of their age. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember that our primary fight is against indwelling sin. As John Owen famously asked, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this, this work. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So even though we continue to struggle with sin, and we will continue to struggle with sin till the day that we are dead, we need to keep putting it to death. And we need to help one another. Guys, we're, we're going to struggle with sin and we need to Care for one another as we struggle in sin, as we get caught up in sin. That's why Paul tells the Galatians, brothers, if any of you is caught up in a, tr- in, in, a, in a trespass, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. He's not saying immediately remove them from the body, but appeal to them gently. Why do you do it gently? Because Christian sin, and when a Christian sins, they're not thinking like a Christian. I like to use the illustration, it's like, you're told by our, your doctors, we have children, and most of my family, I'll just say, sleepwalks, given the opportunity. And doctors say, if a person's sleepwalking, you don't want to just shake them, because that could be traumatic. Well, a Christian who gets caught up in sin, what they're doing, it, it's, not, it's not right, but they know it's not right. What you need is, is gently help them to see that, brother, 
What you're doing is wrong. Now, if their reaction is, well, I don't care, you know, I'm going to do it, you know, and they start to justify it, totally different situation. That's when you follow what Jesus told his apostles in Matthew 18. You bring another brother or sister. There they confront. If that doesn't happen, you bring it to the elders. And if they still won't repent, then you bring it to the church. But we need to keep helping one another gently, helping one another fight. And the great hope that we have is, as even Dan reminded us, he who began a good work in you will complete it. This is not a fight that we're left to fight on our own. This is not a fight that we just got to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and kill sin. You can't do that in your own strength. You need God's help. But he promises he will help us. Galatians 6, 8 and 9. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. In due season, as you keep fighting, you keep getting up after you fail, you keep repenting, have confidence. Even though it, that change might not happen today, next month, over a year, as you keep on fighting, you will bear fruit in time. Keep fighting. Keep praying for one another and helping one another in this fight so that we would all make it home together and sing around the throne of our great and glorious Savior. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would continue to help us see the horrendous nature of sin. Lord, I, you know how easy it is for me to tolerate it and to justify it and to ignore it. And so I pray for all of us that you would increase our disgust, help us to see sin for what it is, and at the same time to see you for what you are, that we would be drawn to your glory and your, and your grace, that we would love you far more than these other vain enticements that seem so appealing. And, and Father, I pray that you would so powerfully work, Spirit, that, you, that when we sin, that we would be so broken that we would be willing to do whatever it takes to not commit that sin again. Whether that's to be caught, to be shamed. Lord, that you would even strike us with illness, with affliction, with pain. Wake us up so that we would not continue in sin and thereby ruin the testimony of your grace in our life. God, give us wisdom to not help one another in this, that we would not be cruel, that we would not be self-righteous, that we would not be judgmental, but that we would be merciful and loving and helpful as we seek to help one another in this perilous fight. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.